Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're continuing a short series of episodes over the rule of Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor. But we're not actually going to be talking about Charlemagne this episode, or at the very least, he won't be the main focus. No, instead we're going to talk about a man who served under Charlemagne back when he was just king of the Franks and Lombards. Roland. Now, here's a funny thing about Roland. He was very much a man who existed and had political power. However, he is much better known for things he never actually did. And this is because Roland's exploits in life were just memorable enough to get him the starring role in the 11th century French epic poem, The Song of Roland. This story was so incredibly popular that, a few centuries later, Italian writers during the Renaissance decided to take Roland, now known by the Italian name Orlando, and turn his life under Charlemagne into the new version of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. So, this episode is actually going to work a little bit like episodes I've done over King Arthur. We'll talk about the actual historical Roland, which hey, we can actually do because he existed, and then go into how his legend was greatly expanded on until he became a legendary hero of the Carolingian Age. His stories would go on to influence generations of writers, even if stories like Orlando Furioso and Morgante aren't as well known to the public as stories of King Arthur. They'd even go on to influence much more modern ideas such as entire genres of modern-day fiction and role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. Seriously, Roland's stories, referred to as the Matter of France, are this incredible mine of wonderful stories that are not taken advantage of with more well-known modern-day adaptations. I mean, I know why they aren't. Spoiler alert, it's the rampant Islamophobia and othering of a bunch of different cultures. But still, hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll too wish to join me on the bandwagon of wanting to hear more about Roland in the cast of legendary figures he helped create. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the 8th century Kingdom of Francia, both historical and fantastic, in Out of Legends, Roland. <laughs> The following is a passage from The Song of Roland, original author unknown, translated by John O'Hagan. Archbishop Turpin, their strife hath heard, his steed with the spur of gold he spurred, and thus rebuked them riding near, Sir Roland and thou, Sir Olivier, contend not in God's great name I crave. Not now availeth the horn to save, and yet behooves you to wind its call. Carl will come to avenge our fall. Nor hence the foemen in joyance when the Franks will all from their steeds descend. When they find us slain and martyred here, they will raise our bodies on mule and bier. And while in pity aloud they weep, lay us in hallowed earth to sleep. Nor wolf nor boar our limbs shall feed, said Roland, yea, tis a goodly reed. Then to his lips the horn he drew, and full and lustily he blew. The mountain peak soared high around, thirty leagues was borne the sound. Carl hath heard it, and all his band, our men have battle, he said, on hand. Ganelon rose in front and cried, if another spake I would say he lied. With deadly travail and stress and pain, Count Roland sounded the mighty strain. 
Forth from his mouth the bright blood sprang, and his temples burst for the very pang. In on and onward was borne the blast, till Carl hath heard as the gorge he passed, and damns in all his men of war. It is Roland's horn, said the Emperor, and save in battle he had not blown. Battle, said Ganelon, is there none. Old are you grown, all white and hoar, such words bespeak you a child once more. Have you then forgotten Roland's pride, which I marvel God should so long abide? How he captured Naples without your hest, forth from the city the heathen pressed. To your vassal Roland they battle grave, he slew them all with the trenchant glaive. Then turned the waters upon the plain, that trace of blood might none remain. He would sound all day for a single hair, tis a jest with him and his fellows there. For who would battle against him dare? Ride onward, wherefore this chill delay, your mighty land is yet far away. On Roland's mouth is the bloody stain, burst asunder his temple's vein. His horn he soundeth in anguish drear. King Carl and the Franks surround him here. Said Carl, that horn is long of breath. Said Nems, tis Roland who traveleth. There is battle yonder by mine avow, he who betrayed him deceives you now. Arm, sire, ring forth your rallying cry, and stand your noble household by, or you hear your Roland in jeopardy. Let's get into a bit of history before we further discuss Roland, both the real man and the legendary figure. During the reign of Charlemagne, the Iberian Peninsula was mostly under Muslim control and known as the territory of Al-Andalus, which is where we get the name of the modern territory in Spain known as Andalusia. At this time in history, the major force of the Muslim world was the Umayyad Caliphate, who ruled out of Baghdad but controlled all the way across the southern border of the Mediterranean Sea, and obviously up north into Spain. However, there was a small bit of land in the north of modern-day Spain that back then was known as Vasconia. This was the homeland of the Basques, an ethnic region that has the pleasure of speaking the only non-Indo-European language in Western Europe. The Basques were constantly threatened by the forces around them. Their Germanic Visigoths that had taken over the Iberian Peninsula in the centuries beforehand, the Muslims of Al-Andalus, and the Frankish people just to the northeast. In the previous episode over Charlemagne, I talked about how his father, Pepin the Short, and Charlemagne himself had both waged war against the Duchy of Aquitaine. When the Aquitanians felt the pressure of Frankish rule, they fled into the Duchy of Gascony. Gascony and Aquitaine, to some extent, extend well within the region of the Basques. Well, that clearly meant that the Basques had no love for Charlemagne and his growing kingdom slash empire. In fact, the Gascons slash Basques had actually kind of been hoping to appease Charlemagne by turning over the Duke of Aquitaine to the Frankish kings and hoping of keeping things cool. And then Charlemagne annexed them anyway. With the Basques now stewing in anger, let's move on to another group that did not have any particular love for Charlemagne and who heavily feature into the story of historical Roland, the Bretons. The Bretons are a Celtic group of people who live in the region of Brittany in northwest France. The Bretons were originally Britonic people, meaning the native Celts of the island of Britain, who emigrated from Britain to the region of France formerly known as Armorica. By the way, Brittany literally translates to Little Britain as a nod to their historical homeland. 
There were two historical mass migrations of the Britannic people. The first was caused by a recall of Roman soldiers with some Celtic Britons among that number in the 4th century, and another mass migration after the arrival of the Germanic Angles and Saxons in the 5th century. Britons speak a language of the same name, which derives from other Celtic languages of Britain such as the Cornish language found in the southwest of the island. The region would eventually come under the rule of the Franks, which I only very briefly mentioned in the previous episode because I knew we'd talk more about it here. So, in medieval France, the government would create borders along their nation referred to as marches. These marches were presided over by an official called a prefect or marquis. While the Merovingian dynasty, the kings predating Charlemagne's family, had created a Breton march, it was reformed with a slightly different border during the reign of the Carolingians. It wasn't until after Roland died that Charlemagne was finally able to conquer Brittany, but he did so in 799, which finally brought all of modern-day France under Frankish rule. However, like many other people the Franks conquered, that didn't mean the Bretons were willing to behave, and they continued rebelling for the next few decades until Charlemagne's son and successor finally had the good idea to put a Breton in control of the Bretons. But before the full conquest of Brittany, the Franks needed someone to make sure they could maintain a semi-peaceful relationship with their western neighbors, or at the very least stop them from attacking Frankish border towns and it's believed that the very first man chosen to do this during the Carolingian dynasty was Roland. The name Roland is the modern French and English form of the Frankish name Hrotheland. It's believed that he was probably the first Marquis of the Breton March after it was reformed under the rule of Charlemagne. And unfortunately, we have zero record of his life before then. In fact, I couldn't even tell you how he fared as the Lord of the Breton March. The only reason Roland's name is known to us in modern day is thanks in part to a man named Einhard. While I'll go more into Einhard in the next episode over the later parts of Charlemagne's life, I'll say here that he was essentially the official court biographer of Charlemagne. It was Einhard who would give us the sole mention of Roland when he talked about those who fought in the Battle of Roncesvalles Pass. What's the Battle of Roncesvalles Pass? Glad you asked, because that will be the rest of this actual history section. So, in 777, Charlemagne had just finished up one of his many campaigns against the Saxons. While he was engaging in peace talks with the Saxons, peace kind of being the wrong word to use here, he was visited by three Muslim officials from Al-Andalus. They were Suleiman al-Arabi, the governor of Barcelona in Girona, Hussein of Zaragoza, the governor of, you guessed it, Zaragoza, and Abu Tawar, the governor of Huesca, the modern-day city of Huesca. They asked Charlemagne if he could help them fight against the Umayyad Caliphate because they were proponents of the up-and-coming Abbasids, the group that would eventually take over as the major caliphate of the Muslim world. Charlemagne saw this as a grand opportunity to expand the reaches of Christianity and agreed to an alliance with the Muslim governors. The next year, he would invade Al-Andalus. So, in 778, Charlemagne divided his forces in two. He would lead an army down to Aquitaine and Gascony, while his uncle would lead forces down into Catalonia in northeastern Al-Andalus. Despite having already been part of Francia, the Duchy of Gascony south of the Garonne River was mostly autonomous, 
Charlemagne created a B-plot to his invasion of Al-Andalus to bring the Basque population to heel. Charlemagne regrouped with his other army and the pro-Abbasid Muslim forces and laid siege to the city of Zaragoza which was now under Umayyad control. The emir in Al-Andalus, emir being the term for the local Muslim ruler, sent his generals Thalaba ibn Obaid to fight off the forces of the Franks and Abbasids. While Charlemagne and the others held the siege, it was Hussein of Zaragoza who would go on to fight off Ibn Obaid and defeat the general. He then decided, hey, this city is mine again, why do I need Charlemagne's help? Hussein refused to let Charlemagne have control of the city, something the Frankish king had vaguely been promised when forming this alliance. Hussein said he never agreed to such terms. After drawing out the siege for a few more months in the hope of the governor of Zaragoza changing his mind, Charlemagne and Hussein decided to opt for peace. Charlemagne would withdraw his forces back to Francia in exchange for a bunch of gold. Well, on his way back, Charlemagne picked up that secondary gold to subdue the Basques. He marched on their capital city of Pamplona and tore down its walls. Some accounts from the time suggest he also destroyed the city. After setting up military bases throughout the region, Charlemagne turned his forces back north, not realizing that the Basques had not in fact submitted to his tyranny. In fact, the full weight of their revenge would soon be felt. Okay, you may be wondering why I haven't really been talking about Roland despite the fact that this is his episode. Like I said, there's very little written about the guy. It's entirely possible that he fought in the siege of Zaragoza. But we do know what happened next. On the way back from Al-Andalus, Charlemagne's retinue had to pass through the Pyrenees, a chain of mountains that straddles the borders of France, Spain, and Andorra. On the 15th of August, 778, Charlemagne and his forces rode past the town of Roncevaux in order to reach the Roncevaux Pass that would allow them to cross over the mountains. The actual pass was very narrow, and it meant that the massive army was forced to march with only four men side by side. This meant that the large force was turned into a massive line. Charlemagne was towards the front. The rear guard was watched over by the mayor of the palace, essentially a sort of prime minister role, the king's steward, and Roland. The rear guard was positioned to watch over all the gold and other treasure the Franks had received and plundered from their campaign in Al-Andalus. Due to the massive weight of the carts filled with gold, the uphill journey caused the rear guard to slowly fall behind. And unbeknownst to anyone in the Frankish retinue, a guerrilla army of Basque fighters were waiting within the woods up above the pass. The sun was setting, and the rearguard was now officially detached from the rest of the Franks. It was then that the Basques attacked. The rearguard was met with a volley of javelins and arrows, taking them completely by surprise. As some of the Basque soldiers swooped in to fight the Franks, others pushed down boulders from above, blocking off the pass, ensuring that the rearguard could not advance and the vanguard could not return to lend aid. It took a while for the sounds of fighting to finally reach Charlemagne, but by then it was too late. It would be impossible to turn the entire army around, and it would then be impossible to reach the rearguard. Some stories say that Roland sounded off a call with a horn in order to send notice of the attack. 
If that's true, it would go on to inform the passage I read from in the Song of Roland, his big moment of calling for aid. Unfortunately, as I've pointed out, it would all be in vain. The rearguard's fate was spelled out for them almost as soon as the Basques started their attack. Even though the Franks were said to have had better equipment than their enemies, the Basques had the home field advantage. The Basque fighters knew the mountains and the woods. They knew how to plan an ambush against people using the pass. It's been a method repeated throughout history, the Greco-Persian Wars, the Maccabean Revolt. You lure the big army into a narrow place and then cut them off. By the time it was all said and done, the entirety of the rear guard, Roland very much included, had been killed. The Basques raided the treasure wagons and made off into the night before the Franks could finally return and see what had happened to their comrades. This was the most massive failure Charlemagne would ever face during his many military outings across his decades-long rule. In fact, he would never personally lead an army into Al-Andalus ever again, instead leaving the job to his generals. According to traditional stories, Roland's body was recovered and buried in a church in the town of Bly, near Bordeaux. And that is it for the story of the historical Roland. He was just a single man who happened to be put in a very unfortunate position. His name could have been completely forgotten if it weren't for Charlemagne's biographer deciding to single him out. But of course, Roland's story does not actually end here. For the somewhat little he did in life, his final moment of pain and glory would instead give birth to a whole new legend. The Song of Roland would not be written until several centuries after Roland's death. While we don't know when it was originally written, or even who wrote it, a general consensus among historians dated it to being started somewhere around 1040 and being completed in its more recognizable form by the early 12th century. Huge note in history for this time, the First Crusade had picked up and finished, and the Second Crusade wasn't too far away. Despite the fact that Charlemagne had allied himself with Muslim governors, granted it was to fight against other Muslims, the Christian world of Europe was now very much pitted against the Muslim world of Western Asia and Northern Africa. So let's get into the basic plot of the Song of Roland, and we'll go through all the changes between the epic poem and actual history as they come along. There's a lot of them. First off, Roland is now a nephew of Charlemagne, who is already emperor despite the fact that the Battle of Roncesvalles Pass predates his coronation as Holy Roman Emperor by several decades. Also, he is specifically listed as one of the twelve paladins of Charlemagne, and we'll get into what that means later. Francia had been at war with the Muslims in Iberia, so that's kind of fitting with history, except that they've actually been at war with each other for seven years in this narrative. Also, the leader of the Muslims is the completely fictional King Marsil. Vaguely echoing history, Marsil is king in Zaragoza, the only city left that had not been conquered by Charlemagne's army. Fearing for the safety of the Muslim world, which in this story is a bad thing because of course, Marsil asks his advisor what he should do. His advisor says to just straight up surrender in the hopes that the Franks will go home. When word of Marcel's surrender is sent to Charlemagne, he asks who should go, and Roland nominates his stepfather, Ganelon. 
Ganelon is another paladin, but is loosely based on a historical figure named Winilo, who was an archbishop who rose to prominence after Charlemagne's death. Anyway, Ganelon thinks that Roland nominated him because he believes Roland secretly wants Ganelon dead, further believing that the Muslims will kill him in Marsil's court. Roland does not want this because he's an all-around good guy and devout Catholic. Anyway, Ganelon is chosen to go to Marsil's court, where he tells the king that he can actually get revenge on the Franks by attacking the rearguard as they go through the mountains on their way back to Francia. Ganelon wants Roland dead, and he knows that Roland will be leading the rearguard. From there, things kinda slightly mirror the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, except for the fact that the Basques are no longer involved. It is now just Christians versus Muslims. During the battle, the completely fictional paladin Oliver, Roland's best friend, begs him to call out for aid on the Oliphant Horn, this being a horn made from an elephant's tusk, which was common in the Middle Ages. Roland refuses, saying that this would be the coward's way out, because Roland is dumb. Not really, this would have been seen as the height of virtue and Christian strength when the story was actually written, I just think it's dumb from a 21st century point of view. So, anyway, Roland continues fighting with his sword Durandal. Durandal is to Carolingian legend as Excalibur is to the King Arthur stories. It's this magical holy sword that was created from a bunch of different holy relics, including the Shroud of Mary and a Tooth of St. Peter, and it can also cut through metal. So, obviously, he's doing very well fighting against the Muslims. However, this is the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, so the Christians are being absolutely slaughtered. After more men die, Oliver tells Roland that if he doesn't blow the horn, Roland will never see Oliver's sister again, aka Roland's unnecessary love interest. Then, we get another paladin coming in named Archbishop Turpin. Yes, he's an archbishop and a paladin. Turpin is like, Roland, seriously just do it, blow the horn or we'll all die. So, Roland blows the Oliphant. Charlemagne hears this and turns the army around, which he's actually able to do in this story. But just like history, his help comes too late. The Frankish army is slaughtered until basically only Roland remains. He decides to blow the horn one last time anyway. He blows the Oliphant so hard that his skull fractures and blood starts coming out of basically his entire face. It's legitimately a disgusting thing to read. Well, that obviously kills Roland, but not before he kills one more guy with Durandal. Then he's carried up into heaven by angels, because of course he is. Charlemagne's army returns and starts destroying the remaining Iberian Muslims. However, the fictional Emir Baligant of Babylon arrives in Spain. Here, Babylon for some reason is used to mean Cairo, Egypt. The only reference I could find for this calls upon an ancient Roman fortress that was called Babylon, so yeah. Balagon's army confronts Charlemagne's army at Roncevaux while they are burying the dead. As you would expect, the Franks destroy the army of Balagant. As a victory prize, Charlemagne takes King Marcel's wife, Bramamonde, back to Francia where she is baptized. Also, it's discovered that Ganelon betrayed the Franks. He's drawn and quartered, so pulled apart by horses, and 30 of his relatives are also killed. For some reason. 
And they all lived happily ever after. Or something close to that. Yeah, it's a weird story. So let's now jump forward a few more centuries to get to the really fun stuff. And the Song of Roland was very popular in the Middle Ages and was translated into several other languages during that era. And as its popularity grew, other writers decided to get in on the game with their own fanfictions about the paladins of Charlemagne. But things really kicked off when the Italians got their hands on the paladins during the Renaissance. It basically kicks off with Dante including Roland, now renamed Orlando in the Italian stories, in heaven. Starting in the 1400s, Orlando, as I'll now be calling him, goes full King Arthur. The stories are still mostly about Christianity versus Islam, but you get a lot more fantastical elements going on like giants, sorcerers, a hippogriff, and a magical trumpet that scares off everyone in a several mile radius. There are three major pieces of Carolingian legends that occupied the scene in the Italian Renaissance. Morgante by Luigi Pulci, Orlando Innamorato by Matteo Maria Boiardo, and the technically unofficial sequel, and probably most well-known, Orlando Furioso by Ludovico Ariosto. In these stories, the new twelve paladins of Charlemagne that would continue to be written about are formed. Obviously we have Orlando, Oliver and Ganelin also return playing the same roles, then we have Ogier the Dane, Malagigi, a sorcerer, Renault slash Ronaldo, who was a popular French character who got co-opted into Carolingian legends, Florismart, Guy de Bourgogne, Namo, Fornambras and O'Toole, two Muslims who converted to Christianity, and Astolfo, a prince of England and Orlando's cousin, and the undisputed best character in all of Carolingian legends, I will stand by that opinion. Noticeably, Archbishop Turpin is not included in this list. He's not always depicted as a paladin, sometimes he's just a background religious figure. Besides the addition of the more fantastical elements, these stories more or less feel like a continuation of the narrative given in the Song of Roland. Morgante literally ends with a retelling of the story. It's in these stories where we see the development of the modern day ideas of what a paladin is. Yes, paladins are also heavily influenced by the Knights of the Round Table, but the paladins of Charlemagne are literally called paladins. In most circles, a paladin would be considered a holy knight, probably one that can also use some sort of holy magic. Maybe wields a magical sword? Beginning to sound like anyone? The stories of Orlando and the paladins, however, started to wane after the 1700s when King Arthur got a strong revival in the public eye. It wasn't really until the later 1900s that Carolingian legends started re-entering the public consciousness with role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. As for D&D, the creators got their idea for the Paladin class from the 1961 story Three Hearts and Three Lions by Paul Anderson. If you actually are interested in the history of D&D or just like older fantasy, I'd recommend the book. Though like every story I've mentioned today, it's definitely not for everyone. Also, for some reason, there are a lot of Carolingian legendary references in anime. Like, every other magical sword is named Durandal. I completely understand why the stories of Roland might not make for great modern adaptations, 
but we keep finding ways to reinvent King Arthur, so why not Roland in the gang? After all, we still use a bunch of elements from their stories in modern fiction. Paladins are a cool archetype and the best D&D class, no I will not hear any arguments. Ariosto created the Hippogriff long before a certain Magical Wizard School series used it. So seriously, please consider looking around for one of the Carolingian legends. I need someone else to talk with about all this stuff. The history of Roland, from minor lord in northwest Francia to epic hero of Renaissance legends, is absolutely incredible to think about. If not for one guy in history saying, hey, who were among the people who died in the Battle of Roncesvalles Pass, we would have missed out on so many great works of art, both historical and modern. Like, sure, the Carolingian legends were very much written to extol the alleged virtues of Christianity over Islam, but they are still compelling narratives in their own right. But now I actually want to briefly talk about the two groups that were part of the narrative besides the Christian Franks, the Iberian Muslims and the Basques. So if you don't know, both Spain and Portugal are overwhelmingly Christian, specifically Roman Catholic. However, despite historical events like the Spanish Inquisition, both nations still have a Muslim population. This shouldn't be surprising considering the history of the region, also considering that the Iberian Peninsula is right next to Morocco, a nation that is 99% Muslim. There is plenty of art and architecture, especially in southern Spain, that is heavily influenced by Arabic styles. So while the Umayyads are long gone, their influence is very much still there. Now on to the Basques. Now, this may surprise you if you aren't in the know, but there are about a dozen independence movements going on in Spain. You've got Catalonia, Galicia, and of course, the Basque country. The historical homeland of the Basques was officially annexed into Spain, well, the Kingdom of Castile, in the 12th century and would remain under their control ever since. That hasn't stopped the Basque community from maintaining their own culture and language. The Basque country is one of the autonomous regions of Spain, which gives Basques some level of self-governance, but that still doesn't mean they're anywhere near given the representation this ethnic group deserves. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we are continuing and concluding the story of Charlemagne as we talk about why and how he became the first Holy Roman Emperor, as well as how that affected Europe for basically the next thousand years. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 